0: This is Radio Ecoshock with Alex Smith.
1: Space physics expert Thomas W. Murphy is now more worried about his own planet. He warns government and corporate plans are insane, impossible. The growth game is over. We are not going back to normal. Post Carbon Institute fellow and author of 14 books Richard Heinberg says the renewable energy transition is failing. Is he giving up? Should we give up? Dive into the deep end this week with Radio EcoShock. Imagine children born into a wealthy family. Wealth is all they know. The family empire is doing great. That is normal. The children inherit money but spend it all by the age of 30. The business fails. And now they need to live on much, much less. That is who we are and where we are in the developed world at the end of the age of fossil fuels maybe you need to come from outer space to see this clearly on a small planet in a way our guest professor thomas w murphy junior has spent a lot of time in space or at least studying it for almost two decades he led the apollo project a network of observatories they used lasers reflecting off the moon to test fundamental physics from newton to einstein and beyond it is super physics stuff But since 2020, Dr. Murphy put more attention on challenges to human survival on this planet. He was one of five founders of the Planetary Limits academic network. Thomas Murphy, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, thank you for coming. Let's dive right in. Since the 1972 Limits to Growth report, a lot of scientists and activists warned humanity will come up against barriers that we can't surmount. But the global economy continues to grow, along with our damage and emissions. The limits to growth people were dismissed as alarmists who were demonstrably wrong. Why are you bringing this back?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And I think the fundamental concerns that these scientists had back in 1972 really haven't gone away. It's still, as your introduction pointed out, we're in this inheritance spending mode so really nothing that you see around you is a good indicator of what can last and what can persist and what is sustainable. It's it's a very temporary fireworks show, if you will, that's dazzling, but it's not something that goes on forever and ever, and we're getting to the part where it's at the crescendo at the end of the fireworks show.
1: You know, it reminds me of the 1970s Italian mathematician Roberto Vacca, and he wrote the coming dark age, but it never came. And so predicting failure doesn't have a really good track record. And it's interesting because we reviewed the work of the late French philosopher Paul Virilio, and he too warned of a breakdown of globalized civilization. But he said, not due to failure, but too much success.
2: Your thoughts? Yeah, I really like that way of framing it. But it depends on how you define success and the way we define success now really comes at the expense of the ecosystem. We define success as technology and as cities and buildings and energy use, and all of that shoots up uh, like a you know, hockey stick curve that's flat for a long, long time and then shoots up in the last century and especially in the last 50 years. And so that's GDP, for instance. We, we use these things to define success, and so it looks like we're successful. But if you plot simultaneously uh, extinction rates or plot mammal mass, on you know, wild mammal mass or forest cover, old growth, uh, vertebrate populations, those are all declining at an alarming rate. And so it's anything but successful in the biophysical world that we are embedded within and must protect if we're going to have a a long-term success.
1: Well, these days, long-standing institutions start to look fragile, and anything you can get away with seems to be the new rule. And this is something that I really like about your work, because you're coming from testing the laws of physics, and that's a new perspective. You say there is a reality, and there are laws. Can you explain how this applies to the human project?
2: Sure. We absolutely are physical beings in a physical world. We need oxygen. We need water. We can't imagine our way out of some of those hard limits. We also have to obey things like conservation of energy and thermodynamics and really don't have a choice there. It's not a matter of human imagination. It's just the the law of the land. And the things that we are doing have consequences physically. And the human enterprise has heretofore been small enough not to be pushing these boundaries. But we are certainly pushing the boundaries now, and the thing that fools us, it's kind of a trap almost, is that we can exceed those boundaries by a large factor before we come up short, because we are able to spend an inheritance of natural capital and and resources that makes us think, and fossil fuels in particular, makes us think that we have superpowers and we're over the edge of the cliff and we're, we're flying, but that's not something that's going to continue because it's based on a a temporary premise.
1: In November 2021, the Planetary Limits Academic Network published a paper called, Modernity is Incompatible with Planetary Limits, Developing a Plan for the Future. You were lead author. What is the profound danger in the constant demand after each crisis to return to, quote, normal?
2: Well, there again, it's a matter of what we define as normal, and we have to acknowledge that what we now define as normal may not be, if it's not sustainable, then it leads to failure. And our normal today is anything but sustainable. So our desire to return to normal, I can kind of understand it from a psychological point of view. Uh, It's what we're familiar with. It's what we're comfortable with. But in the end, it creates The, you know, in the final analysis, the most possible discomfort by trying to return to something that can't really be part of the long term future.
1: Many of our shows and guests are about climate change. Why do you say climate is only part of the
2: puzzle? Yeah, climate is just part of the puzzle. It's important. I don't want to minimize the stress that this puts on planetary systems and on people. But if it were the case that, climate change weren't uh, a consequence of fossil fuels. Let's say that the carbon dioxide emitted by fossil fuels didn't happen to interact with infrared radiation trying to leave the planet and didn't act as a greenhouse gas. So would we be in any less trouble now? Maybe a little bit less, but the biodiversity losses, the deforestation, all the habitat loss, the fisheries decline, the pollution, the plastics in the ocean, Vertebrate populations way down, wild mammal mass just plummeting. And just to put a quick number on it, right now, the mammal mass on the planet is 96% humans in our livestock. That leaves only 4% in the form of ocean and, and land mammals. It's just tanking. It's really going down fast. That has nothing to do or very little to do with climate change. So our the potential for ecosystem collapse is only worsened by climate change, but it's it's still a serious problem before you even talk about climate change. So
1: we need a a plan to get out of this, and every government issues a plan for the future, but when you actually see the legislation, it seems more like crisis reaction. Do you think a viable plan for humanity is out there somewhere?
2: Well, I don't think that we have formulated a viable plan, and part of that is because, or at least You know, as a society and, and, you know, an accepted consensus plan, part of that is because we're still prioritizing the very mechanisms that lead to failure. Um, We're prioritizing growth, for instance, and that's just going to be a physical impossibility. We're prioritizing keeping our current civilization trucking at full speed, and maybe that's just incompatible with our planetary limits. And so until we step back and Ask, even ask the question, what could be long-term sustainable and what do we need to change to be compliant, then any small nudges and tweaks, which most plans are about because we don't want to rock the boat, fall far short of what it would take to truly come within the, the limits that we're going to face, whether we want to or not.
1: You have a free online textbook. I like that. And it's the real thing. It's deep and it's detailed. It would take some work and it's worth it. But let's start with just part of it, as published in the journal Nature Physics, July 2022. And the paper title is simple, Limits to Economic Growth. Is there something new now compared to the 1972 Limits to Growth report, or is it just that the age of limits has finally come?
2: So we're definitely closer to the age of limits. And I'll just point out that the 1972 work, Limits to Growth, had a lot of various models with various assumptions, and they played around a lot with you know trying to change things and explore that, that range of possibilities. And many of their models had a failure and collapse sometime in the middle of this century. So they would have said the limits to growth are probably not going to manifest until the middle of the 21st century. And it turns out various studies have shown that we're basically still on the same trajectory or indistinguishable from the trajectory that was their standard run model that collapsed, you know, in the early and mid twenty first century. So it's not as if the limits to growth had calamity coming in ten years and it didn't happen. They had calamity coming in, you know, eighty years and it you know, it's it's too early to say whether that fails to materialize or not. I think the the limits to economic growth paper I put in was more about why it it wasn't completely addressed in the limits to growth work in 1972, but it's why if we are limited in the the physical resources that we use in the physical scale, why economic growth also has to be limited. A lot of people talk about decoupling and that one thing doesn't have to imply the other, but there are limits to decoupling. And so ultimately... We can't just keep growing economically indefinitely. It just doesn't work thermodynamically even.
1: All of us depend on the eternal growth fantasy, though, one way or another. If growth ends, this Ponzi scheme of borrowing from the future has to end, for example, and millions could go homeless or hungry. Tom, is it dangerous to suggest this growth spurt could and should end?
2: Well, I understand why you would ask the question because a lot of our economy depends on a, I guess, a confidence that the future will be bigger than today, so that you invest and you keep growing. And if if we did have widespread recognition that this is not going to last forever, and in fact we may be nearing the end of that game, you would see market collapses and, and loss of confidence. And so, one way or the other, it's going to end. Will we make it or could we make it worse by how we react to that news? Uh, Certainly we could, but the answer is not to pretend like it's not a real issue. I think the more responsible route is to look at this straight in the eye and understand what limits we're really going to have to face.
1: I want to read out a quick quote uh, from you. Just as a meteorologist somehow born and trained within a 15-minute fireworks display, likely cannot make useful predictions about weather and sky conditions over the next week, we are ill-equipped to intuitively understand what comes after the present phase. Quote. So are we just helpless in the developing chaos of change here?
2: A serious limitation is the fact that our lifetimes are short on the timescales of these major uh, developments. And what I mean by that is that humans have been on this planet for two and a half, three million years. And it's only in the last 10,000 years that we've had agriculture and what we'd call civilization. But if we map that onto a human lifetime that we can comprehend and have intuition around 75 year lifetime, that means that agriculture and civilization are only the last 15 weeks of our life, science and technology, that's only in the last, say, 400 years, which is four days of this 75 year life. And Most of the fossil fuels have been spent and most biodiversity loss has happened just in the last 12 hours or 50 years, the last 12 hours of this 75-year life. So we have such a small lifetime in this evolving scenario that we tend to think of the conditions that we've experienced in our lifetime as time immemorial, but that is so completely not true, it's actually fairly rapid on the scale of human evolution, that it's going to be a transient. It's going to be a pulse. And uh, we have a hard time seeing that from our own limited perspectives.
1: This is Radio EcoShock. I'm your host, Alex Smith. Get all our previous programs at our website, EcoShock.org. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex from the Department of Physics, UC San Diego. Our guest is Professor Thomas W. Murphy. Tom, your work also touches on another question many of our listeners ask. We know our energy system produces carbon dioxide, but it also generates a lot of waste heat. Everything from electronics to car exhausts leak heat into the atmosphere. Does waste heat contribute to global warming?
2: Yeah, everything contributes waste heat. And I want to emphasize it's not just the stuff that doesn't get converted to something useful, like your car engine gets hot and that's waste heat, but also the things that you like about what your car does. Moving the car down the road stirs the air and creates friction in the tires and in the brakes, and 100% of the energy that you spend ends up as a waste heat. And it doesn't matter whether it's a solar or a wind or hydroelectric resource. Everything that we do ends up as waste heat. Right now, that is roughly 10% the scale of the radiative forcing from greenhouse gases. And so right now it's not a serious concern, but if we live this fantasy of expanding our energy enterprise as we have over the last few hundred years, were we to continue in about a century, they would be comparable. And in two centuries, we would have something like 10 times the problem in waste heat than we do in CO2. I don't think that's going to happen. Other things will keep us from that trajectory but it's just a way to point out that we can't just imagine our way into a continued energy growth trajectory without thermodynamic consequences.
1: I think waste heat is important for two more reasons. First, even if it only warms Earth by a fraction of a degree, we recently learned that every one-tenth of a degree more warming can be very important to avoid. And second, urban heat is building on global warming, adding to the death toll during extreme heat waves, Tom, I'm wondering, is the waste heat from warming cumulative, or does this impact stop when humans stop putting waste heat into the atmosphere?
2: So the waste heat from our energy expenditures is a short lifetime phenomenon. It's, it's sort of the timescale for the radiation to leave the planet, and so that's, you know, days or, or shorter even. So unlike CO2, which is the gift that keeps on giving, the waste heat part is more of an instantaneous process.
1: The most extreme damage to climate in the natural world develops if we continue to expand. But isn't growth like a biological law? Uh, it, it's used by everything from microbes to deer. Sexuality always tries to produce more copies of the species than nature can kill off. Is it really possible for humans to avoid this fundamental biological drive now that we're hitting the limit?
2: Yeah, great question. I don't know the answer. Um, I think Growth itself is an awkward word because we celebrate growth. Our children grow into adults and animals grow into adult animals, but they don't keep growing. An elephant doesn't just keep growing indefinitely through its life. So biological systems as individuals see a, a limit to their growth cycle, and if they don't, there will be problems. But you're right, populations do compete within the ecosystem and and have an interest in, in growing, and we do have checks and balances, if you will, in a functioning ecosystem that more or less stabilize. I mean, you can have fluctuations, but long-term, nothing grows exponentially, long-term, and it just can't. Now, humans have acquired a certain power in this world that lets us temporarily violate the rules. And so, you know, if we do keep trying to grow, we will eventually stop and, and decline. One thing I will say is that the population growth rate that's just swelled in the last 100 years is almost entirely a reflection of fossil fuels and how we do agriculture and fertilizer. So that being a temporary resource really argues that we may be approaching a a maximum population soon. And as fossil fuels are no longer able in the coming centuries to provide our power, it's not hard to imagine that the population would decline as that fundamental resource also declines.
1: Historians argue whether James Watt's invention of the steam engine enabled the British to end slavery. By your calculations, the average human now has 20 energy servants, and every American has 100. We're living better than royalty in the past. Why would anyone give that up?
2: Yeah, I'm not sure most people would. It is living a high life, but it's at the end of the day, not even a choice. Uh, It's not going to be available forever. So it's um, a temporary surge. We're spending these fossil fuels one million times faster than they were produced. And so it's a very temporary situation. And we can think about renewables kind of stepping in to stabilize that situation. But the fact is, renewables aren't themselves actually renewable. They're tapping into renewable flows of energy. But the devices that we use are built out of non-renewable resources so that if you actually replaced our fossil fuel current fossil fuel habit with, say, entirely solar, just to make it simple to think about, the copper extraction on the planet would have to increase by roughly a factor of 10. And we're probably straining the limits right now on copper extraction, and it causes all kinds of ecological harm. And so are we really ready to dial that up by 10 times? Could we even do that? And that's sustained. That's a long-term, basically indefinite prospect on a non-renewable resource. So it, it really just, it's hard to understand how it could step in and just keep us at the same level. So I don't really think we have a choice the way we imagine that we do.
1: In your 2022 comment paper, you write, we cannot expect efficiency to provide an eternal source of growth. That's a little hard to understand. Why not?
2: I can understand why it's hard to to grasp, but efficiency can't be better than 100%. Let's just start by saying that. A lot of things are, you know, 50, 80% efficient, electric motors, 90% efficient. There's not so much that we can squeeze there. Uh, it's always going to take a certain amount of energy to boil water. You're not going to suddenly be able to do that with a lot less energy. And, and many, many tasks that we engage in have a certain energy requirement. And so efficiency also tends to improve at something like 1% per year. And we're already to the point where that's a doubling time or having time of, of 70 years. We don't even have another factor two to gain in most things. So maybe we get a few more decades out of efficiency improvements, but it's not an indefinite prospect.
1: You caution that our frontier attitude will meet a physical brick wall at some point, but it isn't just the economy that suffers if something collapses. It's a lot of dreams of social equity and helping people out of poverty. Does social justice demand that we continue believing in the mantra of growth, even though environmental science says that is extremely dangerous?
2: Yeah, in the end, if we don't have an environment, we won't have any social justice either. So. You don't really get to pick, which is more important. We we have a physical substrate that's the basis of life, and if we were to see an ecosystem collapse, there's going to be untold suffering of humans and, and non-human species alike, and social justice will be the last thing on our minds because we're just going to be struggling. So I think it's a, a, a great goal, but only after you've established something that's sustainable, then you can talk about equitable. But if you try to put one in front of the other, that doesn't actually accomplish the goal in the end.
1: Although I think some social justice people would argue that it's only through social justice and equity that you can get to anything sustainable, but that we'll, we'll leave that behind. I want to get to this. Most of academia has been fully on board with the growth wagon. Universities and research institutions intend to grow themselves and they count on the growth of their investments. How do you think the role of academics should be changed and would that really help?
2: Yeah, I think. The academic role has been kind of feeding the machine, if you will, and in the context of a growing economy and a growing footprint on the planet. But since that can't be sustained, then universities will no longer be in the, in the role of serving the society in that way. They, they can't. It won't, it won't last. So I would personally like to see a more proactive move to understand what's coming in the next half century and start preparing students you know the minds of tomorrow not for the world of yesterday but for a completely you know new reality that's the the post-growth kind of reality that we are inevitably going to going to face so i don't think universities right now are serving our best long-term interests
1: and as a matter of curiosity for decades scientists have been testing albert einstein's physics like the special theory of relativity how is the old man's work holding up?
2: Well, it's done pretty well. I mean, nothing yet has dethroned that, that idea. What, and just to be clear, whether Einstein had stumbled onto it or not, we would certainly have well before now because it's just the way the world appears to work. So we, we still see that as the best description of how space and time and gravity work.
1: Well, as we get close to the end of our time together, I wish you would take a couple of minutes and tell us about your free online textbook, Energy and Human Ambitions on a Finite Planet.
2: Sure. It is a textbook that is open access. You can find it online and get a free PDF. It is available in print form if you want, just at the cost of printing it. And it it's a sandwich. Okay. And the middle part is about energy and, you know, fossil fuels, climate change, and renewable energy technologies and their pros and cons. But bracketing that, which is kind of standard fare for, say, a course on energy and the environment, the lead up is why growth is not something that can go on forever. And the final part is now that we've seen all of these difficulties, what are some of the human barriers and the social barriers to actually seeing these things come to fruition? And it's, it's not a textbook with a glowing, happy message. It's one to basically say, we really ought to be thinking about these things because it doesn't serve our interests to imagine that we're, we're going to uh, escape somehow from these concerns.
1: I will put links to get this free online textbook, plus uh, more about the people and papers we talked about, all in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Professor Tom Murphy, thank you for spending valuable time with us. Sure. I'm Alex Smith. A giant blob of seaweed, wider than the United States, is heading towards the Caribbean, Florida, and Gulf coasts. It can be seen from space. This is a brand new oceanographic event created by a combination of global warming, deforestation, and agricultural fertilizers. That is how the bloom doubled in a month to a size never before seen. Just listen to this description by world Sargasso expert, Brian LaPointe, speaking to CNN's Rosemary Church, Thursday, March 16.
3: This is an unusual year in that this, uh, Sargassum bloom in the Great Atlantic Sargassum Belt started early. It it doubled in size between December and January. Uh, In one month, it doubled in size and was larger in January than it has ever been since this new region of Sargassum growth began in 2011. So this is an entirely new oceanographic phenomenon. Uh, previously the Sargasso was in the Sargasso Sea to the north, that is the central gyre of the North Atlantic Ocean, and would circulate in the currents around that as well as through the Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico. So this is a a whole new thing. And this is the source of this Sargassum seaweed that is is creating such a, a problem, really a catastrophic problem for for tourism in the Caribbean region where it piles up on beaches up to 5 or 6 feet deep on the beaches in some places in fact in Barbados just last week they reported they need 1600 dump trucks a day to clean the beaches of this seaweed to make it suitable for for tourists and recreation on the beaches and you know where it comes ashore in the mangroves it 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 comes in in such large quantities that it basically sucks the oxygen out of the water and creates what we refer to as dead zones. These are normally uh, nursery habitats for fisheries and and you know once once they're devoid of oxygen, uh, we have lost that habitat. They are also harmful to seagrasses and coral reefs and uh, obviously to human health as well because when they rot, they release toxic hydrogen sulfide gas. They have a high concentration of arsenic in the tissue. So you have to be very careful when you clean the beaches and try to reuse this for fertilizers or some other beneficial use.
1: That was Professor Brian LaPointe from Florida Atlantic University speaking on CNN. The peak seaweed load for the U.S. beaches is still to come, likely in summer. The stink of rotting seaweed is part of our evolutionary warning system. It's about a very toxic gas, hydrogen sulfide. Sargasso was known to early European sailors, and they avoided that swirl of currents known as the North Atlantic gyre. But now, due to hotter seas, and currents shifted by changing winds due to global warming, the currents have changed, pushing out this new seaweed mat further south. It exploded in size, and here it comes. This is a signal missed far too often in climate models and expert predictions. Nature will respond to our pollution and attacks with chaos and then new arrangements. Watch for signals from living things. You're listening to Ecoshock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org.
2: This is Radio Ecoshock with your host, Alex Smith.
1: For decades, Richard Heinberg led the charge to get off fossil fuels. Now, he says, the renewable energy transition is failing. Is he giving up? Should we give up? Heinberg is author of 14 books like The End of Growth and Power Down. His most recent book is Power, Limits and Prospects for Human Survival. You may have seen Richard in documentaries like The End of Suburbia or Planet of the Humans and DiCaprio's Eleventh Hour. He was among the first bloggers in the energy and climate arenas with his newsletter, now around issue 359. Richard is senior fellow at the Post Carbon Institute. From California, Richard Heinberg, a warm welcome back to Radio Ecoshock.
0: Well, hi, Alex. It's great to be talking with you again.
1: A strange reality is unfolding around you in California. I lived in L.A. way back, never heard of an atmospheric river. California was the sunny place you want to be, and it's not so much this year. The Silicon Valley, well, crashed its own bank, and there's hundreds of thousands of homeless. Why is it so weird in California these days?
0: (laughs) Well, you know, actually living here, it doesn't seem nearly as weird as it gets portrayed in the news. Here in Santa Rosa, we've had a lot of rain this year, which is great because we've had drought in recent years. But our average annual rainfall in Santa Rosa is 34 inches. We've had 37 inches of rain so far. So we're just a little above the seasonal average. And that's great. That's where we need to be. So, yeah, there are some trees down and some people have been seriously inconvenienced by all this rain. But, you know, it could be a lot worse.
1: All right, maybe a case of bad press. And in your latest newsletter, published in February, it was called Converging Debt Crisis. Are the recent bank failures part of that?
0: Well, uh, sadly, I think so. The larger crisis that we're looking at is that we have created enormous amounts of debt, government debt, corporate debt, household debt on the basis of the assumption that the economy is always going to grow, or just about every year the economy is going to grow. But, you know, economic growth is something that can't go on forever. It has real-world implications. When the economy grows, we use more energy and materials. And reality is, we live on a finite planet. Economic growth comes at the expense of other species and future generations in the final analysis. Yeah, we can tinker around the edges with improvements in efficiency and and so on. But realistically, the economy is already too big. And at some point, it's going to be downsized by processes over which we have very little control, like resource depletion and uh, biodiversity loss. So uh, what happens when that kicks in? Well, a lot of the debt that we've racked up, based on the assumption of continued economic growth in the future, is going to come due, and it's not going to be pretty from a financial perspective. So is Silicon Valley Bank just an early warning of that? Well, you know, it's kind of like tying today's weather to climate change. Well, it's impossible to say how much it's related, but, you know, I like to keep the big-picture perspective in mind.
1: So why do you say the renewable energy transition is failing?
0: Just from the standpoint of uh, carbon emissions, what we're seeing currently is we're building lots more solar panels, wind turbines. Billions of dollars are being directed into increasing the manufacture of, of renewable energy infrastructure. And yet, carbon emissions are still increasing. we reached record-level carbon emissions in 2022 even with all the effort that's being put into building renewables. So why is that? Well, once again, it goes back to economic growth. We're demanding that the economy continue to grow, which means we demand more energy. And the energy growth annually is greater than the new energy inputs from renewables. Now, yeah, we could just... You know, redouble our efforts, but how much would we actually have to do that? The best estimates that I've seen suggest that we would need to increase our funding for renewable energy by five times to ten times what it is now. And that just doesn't seem to be on the horizon. So if we want to reduce carbon emissions, we're going to have to do something other than just building solar panels and wind turbines. We're going to actually have to start using less energy, and that means using less energy for things like transportation and manufacturing, because it's going to take a lot of energy to build all the solar panels and wind turbines, and not just the panels and turbines, but all the other renewable energy infrastructure or electrical infrastructure that will be needed. This is a huge subject, actually, and it's one that very few people really appreciate in its depth. Because we're not just talking about you know, switching out energy sources. We're also talking about switching out enormous amounts of energy using infrastructure. Because most of our energy using infrastructure today was built around the energy sources that we had in the past, which were solid, liquid, and gaseous fuels, as opposed to electricity, which is what solar and wind produce and we only use 20% of our energy in the form of electricity. The other 80% we use in the form of fuels. So the energy transition is not just about building panels and turbines. It's about basically shifting our whole industrial model away from its reliance on fossil fuels toward entirely different energy sources. That's a huge project, and realistically, it's going to take decades. But I don't see that we've even seriously started. And the sign that we have seriously started will be that we actually begin reducing carbon emissions.
1: You spent decades investigating the limits of energy on this planet with articles and books about coal and oil and gas depletion. In your newer work, I'm hearing as much concern about the limits of minerals. Why is that?
0: Well, here's another uh, facet of the renewable energy transition. It's going to take a tremendous amount of uh, a wide range of minerals in order to build all of this new infrastructure. Most people are generally aware that we're going to need a lot of lithium for batteries and so on. But, you know, something as simple as sand, I think we kind of tend to assume that there's a heck of a lot of sand in the world. We could never run out of that. But actually, we need very specific forms of sand for producing silicon or even for producing uh, concrete. You know, concrete is the really the foundation of industrial civilization. And we use concrete also for anchoring wind turbines. So we'll need a lot of concrete in order to build all of this new infrastructure. Do we have enough sand? Well, it turns out we need very specific kinds of sand, The granules of sand, have to be angular. They can't be all eroded and round. That just doesn't make very good concrete. It needs to be very pure if we're going to make silicon. Those special kinds of sand are actually getting very scarce. So that's just one mineral resource that we're going to need a heck of a lot of in the coming decades. And we have to understand also, if we insist on more economic growth, that also means vastly greater quantities of minerals. Over the last few decades, we've been doubling the size of the human economy every 25 years. That's the real-world implication of 2 to 3% economic growth annually. So doubling the size of the economy every 25 years also means that the amount of waste we're producing has doubled every 25 years. So can we continue that doubling rate out into the next few decades as we're also building all of this new infrastructure for the renewable energy transition. It's just an enormous project. Realistically, I don't think much of it's going to happen. I believe we really do need to build solar panels and wind turbines to produce electricity so that we have functioning electricity grids, maybe slimmed-down grids, in the future. But if we let the grids go, if the transition fails completely, then the result will be that we'll lose civilization itself because everything's been digitized. All our scientific knowledge, all of our financial records, everything has been digitized. So if the grid goes down once and for all, we're pretty much done for. So we've got to keep the grids up and running. And that means we'll need renewable electricity. But are we going to be able to also have enough renewable electricity for, you know, electric aircraft and all the other amenities that uh, some of us might like to have? Realistically, I don't think so.
1: In your recent article at resilience.org, you introduce us to Simon Michaud at the Finnish Geological Survey. Simon wrote a report with a quite a long title, but it's worth it. Assessment of the extra capacity required of alternative energy electrical power systems to completely replace fossil fuels. What did Michaud discover about our big plans for an energy transition?
0: Well, Michaud is an expert on on mineral resources. He's with the Finnish Geological Survey. And he crunched the numbers and came to the conclusion that we simply don't have enough mineral resources to accomplish the renewable energy transition. Now, that conclusion has been criticized by some other researchers. So I guess you could say, in one sense, that we, we still don't know. But I have to say, uh, even if Michaud is off by a factor of two, let's, let's say we have twice as many mineral resources as he thinks we do. How much longer does that give us? Well, if we keep doubling the size of the global economy every 25 years, that gives us another 25 years. There are some French researchers who assumed perfect rates of recycling, you know, recycling minerals and metals as well as we possibly can. And there are some practical limits on recycling, because as we recycle many materials, they degrade over time. So it's impossible to have 100% recycling. But they assumed recycling at the highest levels currently technically feasible. And in their view, there are enough minerals for us to operate a uh, renewable energy economy of the current scale of the global economy for about two to 300 years before we just finally run out of everything. So You know, that's kind of the best possible case, because currently we aren't recycling anything at close to the maximum rates, and it will take us not just a technical revolution, but I think a social and economic revolution to get to the point where we're actually operating our economy on the basis of renewable energy and recycling everything at optimum rates. We're so far from that situation now that, We're really talking about hypotheticals.
1: And this renewable energy revolution depends on a system of global cooperation and trade. I mean, lithium comes from one place and the chips come from somewhere else. Instead, we're seeing a split into major blocks. There's one war in progress, another possible. There are trade sanctions on some materials that you need for wind and solar. Richard, should we see the geopolitical divide? as an important stumbling block for really getting renewable products and power?
0: Well, I'm sad to say, yes, it very likely is. Michael Clare is a scholar who's been working on this subject for a long time. He has books like The Race for What's Left and Resource Wars, Rising Powers, Shrinking Planet. And in these books that he's written, he he argues, I think, very persuasively that as our need for minerals and metals increases and as geopolitical tensions mount over access to those resources, we're going to see the current kinds of geopolitical fault lines really run much deeper and we could see a, a new round of wars on a scale that we haven't seen since since the World Wars of, of the 20th century. You know, the last few decades uh, have seen a lot of regional conflicts, uh, smaller-scale conflicts, but generally speaking, we've had, globally, we've had a, a, a period of relative world peace that has enabled lots of economic growth and and a lot of, of general optimism about what we can do as human beings on this planet. But uh, if we're going to continue with that kind of Pax Americana is what some people have called it because it's the U.S. as the global superpower that has sort of maintained this this global level of, of peace. If we're going to continue that, it's going to require new mechanisms for conflict resolution that we we currently don't have, and that's going to require compromise on all sides. It's going to require a general recognition that if we descend into resource conflict, then all of the problems that we're facing are going to get much, much worse. We'll have no chance at really solving climate change while maintaining industrial levels of production. It's really the worst of all possible worlds.
1: You are tuned to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. Our guest is author and post-carbon expert Richard Heinberg. We're talking about the real future. Well, we also have, in the United States in particular, uh, popular resistance and sometimes armed resistance to any reduction in lifestyles. You'll get this gas stove from my cold, dead hands, they say. (laughs) Uh, Fossil fuel use is considered almost part of the Constitution or a God-given right. Apparently, millions of people would rather fight than give up anything. Is there any way to depoliticize this project to save civilization and our environmental home?
0: well we're going to have to depoliticize a lot of things and and, uh, and i think that's going to have to start at at the local level you know we're going to have to start talking to each other as people instead of woke or maga or you know left or right we're all human beings we all eat we all have loved ones we all have a stake in having a survivable future reality is reality regardless of of what you think about it and in, in reality, we live on a finite planet. Some of us may love fossil fuels, but the reality is that they're finite. They, they're running out. We've had this fracking revolution over the last 10, 15 years that has enabled the U.S. to produce more oil and gas faster than at any time in our previous U.S. history. We, our uh, U.S. oil production grew by... What was it, 7 million barrels a day or something like that in, in 10 years? Nothing like that in previous world history, you know. But that's coming to an end. Um, even the Wall Street Journal now is saying that the fracking revolution is running on fumes. Post-carbon institute, we did a series of reports over the last several years showing that this would just be a, a, a short-term you know, shot in the arm for the oil and gas industry. It's really the last hurrah because it's, you know, the, the industry has always gone after the, the easiest to get, highest quality resources first. And when we're talking about shale, gas, and tight oil, these are not the best, easiest, cheapest to get resources. These are the, these are the bottom of the barrel. And yeah, they've been, they have been a shot in the arm for the industry over the last 10 years. But over the next few years, we're going to see declining production in all of these resource plays, um, the back end, uh, the uh, Eagle Ford, even the Permian in Texas is starting to top out. And when that happens, then global oil production is going to start declining for purely geological reasons, regardless of what we do about climate change. And then, you know, well, whose fault is that? Well, I'm sure that some people will say we're just not investing enough and, oh, it's because the government has put all these restrictions on drilling and so on. But You know, the reality is uh, we're just running out.
1: You and I see energy dissent as fundamental to any effort to save ourselves, the Secretary-General of the United Nations surely agrees. Instead, Joe Biden just authorized a huge drilling project by ConocoPhillips in the farthest north arctic of Alaska, And these fossil fuels will not come online until 2029 or 2030, the years when every major agency and institution says we need to be slashing fossil fuels, not adding more. The U.K. government just approved more gas fracking. Everybody's plunging into a dead planet future. How do you see all this?
0: Frankly, I think it's inevitable, as long as we maintain this misguided view that we have to grow the economy and that the future has to look like the last few decades, you know, everybody has to have a car. We've got to be constantly buying more consumer products in order to grow the economy, so everybody has a job. You know, this is a this is an economic system that traces back to the 1930s when we had a depression caused by overproduction, and, and uh, everybody got together, industrialists and and government politicians, you know, got together and said, "Well, we have got to fix this. How do we do it? Well, we've got to encourage consumption." And consumerism was born with advertising and and, uh, consumer credit to encourage people to go into debt so they could afford to buy stuff that they otherwise couldn't. And so we've had this uh, growth machine in operation ever since, and now it's just baked into everybody's worldview, whether you're an economist or or a politician or or just somebody who runs a grocery store, the the assumption is the economy's continually got to grow. And the only way it does is with more energy. And where do we get our energy currently? From fossil fuels. So as long as we maintain this mindset, there's going to be the demand for more fossil fuels. So it's not just, as I was saying earlier, it's not just a matter of building more panels and turbines. We've got to change that fundamental mindset, this dependency on growth that we've baked into our, our institutions. That's the only thing that's going to uh, get us off of, of fossil fuels.
1: What happened to the degrowth movement?
0: Well, it's actually alive and well in Europe, not so much in the U.S. It never got off the ground in the U.S., and it's easy to understand why, because the U.S. is where the whole economic growth mania started. Uh, it's the, the country where it's most institutionally baked into how we do business and how we do government. So, you know, it's really hard to get Americans to question growth. But, you know, you go elsewhere in the world and people, there are a lot of people who get it. And they're reorganizing their lives to to use less and to depend less on on money even. You know, I mean, we, we assume that money makes the world go round. Of course, well, it's it's really energy that makes, <laughs> makes the world go round. But, you know, as, as we depend more and more on money, we use more resources, we uh, alienate ourselves more and more from the natural world and so on. Uh, there, there are a lot of people who get it.
1: Just for listener information, there's a degrowth workshop. Uh, well, there was one, 26 February, in Melbourne, Australia. But there's another conference, Beyond Growth 2023, May 15th, uh, in the European Parliament in Brussels. And then the ninth International Degrowth Conference will take place uh, in late August in Zagreb, Croatia. So it's still going. It's too bad that we don't hear more about it, as you say, in the United States or Canada. So, Richard, maybe the current stock and banking system will crash into a major depression. People would make do with less because they have to. Could that help us?
0: Well, you know, I hate to be the person who says, yes, it could help, because, of course, that, that makes it sound like I'm rooting for lots of people to lose everything they have, and go from getting by to suffering. I don't want anybody to have to suffer. But the reality is we have an economic system that's designed to fail. Given the finite nature of global resources, global energy, and given the necessity for further growth that's baked into the financial institutions themselves, we're on a collision course. There could be an upside to that. If we foresee it, if we plan for it, if we start to remake those institutions now ahead of the crisis, then we could build a world, a post-growth world, where we depend less on, as I was saying earlier, depend less on money and depend more on each other and on the health of global ecosystems so is that happening? Again, it is happening in some places. And if you go to you know somewhere like Costa Rica, you're going to get see a very different reality from what you see in you know, New York or Los Angeles. And it's in the places, I think, where we refuse to acknowledge limits that we're going to see the most suffering. Uh, and again, I don't want to see anyone have to suffer because of all of this, but I'm afraid we're setting ourselves up for it.
1: Do you think rationing is a way to make this smaller pie more fairly distributed?
0: Oh, I'm glad you brought that up, because I definitely think that rationing is in our future, and rationing could be a great way to get ourselves through this bottleneck. What is rationing? Well, it's, it's a way of apportioning scarce resources so that everybody has what they need, and that's exactly what we need. We've had rationing during uh, both World Wars, In Britain, they had rationing for many years after the end of the the Second World War because they were still recovering and and still experiencing scarcity. And here's the thing. During rationing in Britain, as they were rationing food, for example, uh, people were actually better nourished with rationing than they were prior to or after rationing. Uh, Again, everybody had what they needed. And currently, everybody doesn't have what they need. We have extreme economic inequality and growing economic inequality. Uh, and if we try to maintain that, you know, that level of freedom for those with too much to get even more, then those who are at the bottom of the economic pile are just going to you know, fall off altogether. And the human toll could be just horrific. The way to overcome that is with rationing, and rationing builds social cohesion. Uh, If it's fair, that's the key. It has to be fair, and it has to be transparent. But if it is, people can get on board and understand this is for the good of everyone, and seeing that they're getting their basic needs met, they'll go along.
1: Two-part question. Do you still have chickens, and has a flame of post-carbon survived in communities in California?
0: Yeah, we d- we still do have chickens. We're down to 2 right now. Unfortunately, a, a couple of our our chickens passed away last year, and- but we're hoping to uh revive our flock this year. And yeah, there are fewer, I think, communities in California that are calling themselves, you know, post carbon outposts back uh Fifteen years ago, we had a program along those lines, and then there were the transition towns, which we helped to promote. And I don't see quite as many of those sort of grassroots community-level organizing efforts going on now, which is um, which is a shame because we need it now more than ever. So I don't know what the next organizing model will be to get get people working. Hopefully that wasn't just a, a generational phenomenon where, you know, the baby boomers were more into doing that kind of thing and, and the next generation is less so because, you know, that's that's absolutely what's required. We've got to get together on a community level to build social resilience, to build social trust, because that's what gets us through when times get tough. Uh, my wife and I learned that uh, when we had the fires here in, in Santa Rosa a few years ago. It was our neighbor's who came to our aid, and it was with our neighbors that we celebrated the passing of the fires, and we had community cookouts and and, uh, celebrations, and it was enormously healing. I think that's where we have to put our emphasis.
1: From the California coast, we've been speaking with one of the original post-carbon visionaries, Richard Heinberg. You can find him at richardheinberg.com. I recommend his newsletter and his books. Richard, thank you so much.
0: It's always a pleasure speaking with you, Alex. Thank you. Take care.
1: I want to thank all listeners for your tips and emails. This program is listener-supported science journalism. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for wanting to find out and caring about this world.